Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 66, Real Knowledge. Today I interview Scott Smith from Biola University to talk about why he thinks our ability to have knowledge of reality supports anthropological dualism rather than monism or physicalism. It's a long interview, so I'm going to make this short, but I did want to mention just a couple of things. First, um, Dr. James White, Patrick Novice, and I are working out the details for their upcoming debate on my show on the Trinity. Um, we are still working out some of those details. It'll probably be November 25th or somewhere thereabout. Um, and it will concentrate on a few specific texts uh, rather than some sort of open-ended is the Trinity biblical kind of idea. Um, I hope you'll look forward to that. I know that I am. The other thing that I wanted to make you aware of is that I've agreed to actually requested uh, to participate in a moderated debate on annihilationism. Um, I, as you know, I am very heavily leaning toward the view, even if I'm not 100% convinced yet. Um, in fact, every day I feel more and more compelled in that direction, and you'll see why in the debate. Uh, and so I reached out to Grassroots Apologetics and, and asked them if uh, I could debate them on the topic, because if an uneducated, inexperienced layman like me, new to this view, relatively speaking, is able to make a very compelling case that is unable to be overturned, um, that, that might be enough to, to, take me to, uh, to cause me to take that last step. Um, to move from 98% convinced to 100% or whatever the case might be. Um, I think it'll be good. My, I've prepared my opening statement, and I think it's very compelling, and I've prepared a bunch of rebuttal material and stuff for cross-examination. Um, as, as it turns out, the debate will be moderated by Michael Burgos, my friend who has uh, participated with me in, in, my, in several episodes of my show. Um, the, uh, a new contributor to Grassroots Apologetics named Hiram Diaz uh, will be the affirmative in the debate, and I will be the negative. And the debate proposition is this. The punishment of the damned will be actual torment forever and ever. So like I said, Hiram will be affirming that. I will be denying it. Um, it will be a structure very similar to, if not identical to, the recent debate between Turret and Fan and Ronnie Demler. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. That debate is right now scheduled for December 20th, so we've got about a month and a half or so um, to prepare. I don't think I'll need all that long, but it'll be helpful. Um, I hope that you don't mind having to wait for a month and a half before that debate, uh, but um, I hope you'll look forward to it. Uh, you know, I think I'm going to come at it with a slightly different from a slightly different angle than many annihilationists do, which I think will help keep the debate on uh, focused on track and not diverging into uh, secondary issues. In any case, I'm, I'm digressing. Um, but those are the two events that I wanted to make uh, make you aware of. Other than that, I don't have anything scheduled. Um, and uh, I don't know what it is that the topic of the next episode will be before that Dr. White debate, but... Um, I'll uh, try to come up with something worthwhile, and perhaps you might like the fact that uh, that I'm returning to teaching on my own. I, I doubt it, but <laughs> maybe you will. In any case, uh, let's go ahead and play today's promo for Evidence for Faith. 
Can anyone really know whether or not God exists? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and we are the hosts of Evidence for Faith, the radio show now airing on Sundays from 4 to 5 p.m. at 1020 a.m. Lots of people believe in God, but they don't think it's possible to know for certain that he really does exist. They believe because they think they ought to. Join us and our interesting guests as we explain the evidences so that you can know for certain that God exists, the Bible is a divinely inspired book, and that Jesus is the Son of God and was raised from the dead. So whether you're seeking answers for yourself or helping others who have doubts, Evidence for Faith will provide the encouragement and assurance you need. That's Evidence for Faith every Sunday from 4 to 5 p.m. where we are helping Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. As I just mentioned, uh, Evidence for Faith airs Sundays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can listen at WIBG 1020 a.m. in southern New Jersey uh, and streaming live at WIBG.com. Uh, and as I also mentioned, you can check out their uh, online presence at Evidence, the number 4, Faith.com, where you can uh, subscribe to their podcast and listen to past episodes. Uh, so in any case, with that promo out of the way, let's go ahead and move in today's interview with Scott Smith from Biola University on the topic of dualism. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Scott Smith, Associate Professor of Ethics and Christian Apologetics at Biola University, and author of several articles critical of physicalism, including an essay being considered for publication called, Should a Christian Scholar Be a Physicalist? And he's here today to discuss why he thinks a person is a unity of material body and immaterial soul. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Smith. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, you're currently a professor at Biola, a name that I hear mentioned a lot and not at all in a bad way. How is it that you came to teach at Biola, and why might some of my listeners want to consider an education there? Well, that's real sweet of you to even ask that. Um, actually, how I came to teach here um, is kind of an interesting story how the Lord worked, because um, when I was uh, getting ready to graduate from USC with my Ph.D., I applied far and wide, uh, just about any you know, position where I could get into ethics, and you know, because uh, my you know PhD is religion, social ethics, and my MA is in uh, philosophy of religion and ethics. So I I focused there, and uh, I had you know a couple preliminary you know types of interviews, um, but nothing opened up. Hmm. And all of a sudden, one day I get a call from Craig Hazen. Uh, who is my director here at uh, Biola and the Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics. And uh, I didn't know that he had an opening, but, but he and I had been in touch you know, in the past and had uh, chatted some, and it turned out that uh, J.P. Moreland uh, had introduced us about a year before. Well, Craig remembered me and <laughs> gave me a call and uh, thought, hey, would you like to apply for a full-time opening I've gotten? Yeah, I didn't know you had one, so so I did, and uh, the doors just kept opening, and now I've been here for quite a while, since uh, summer 2000, and it it was just obviously of the Lord. Mm. Uh, I had no idea there'd be an opening, and God is just blessed. Um, why, why would somebody want to come here for an education? Um, my goodness, um, 
I, I think our program here has just been uh, really blessed. Um, many, many people have gone through this now. I'm not sure how many all total, but right now we have about close to 200 um, MA, current MA students hmm. in the apologetics program. Most of those are in the what's called the modular or distance you know type program. It's a hybrid with some residency units, and most of it can be completed at a distance. Um, there are some people who take it you know from you know just you know in the area, the traditional you know way, the in class type you know meetings. Um, but boy, I, I think we just uh, got a good track record now, and uh, we bring in a wide range of professors and draw upon others here at Biola as well. Uh, Gary Hapermas will bring in, Bill Craig will bring in, um, uh, J.P. Moreland teaches, you know, for Biola too, so we'll bring him in and a whole number of other people, uh, myself, Clay Jones, Kevin Lewis, and Craig, you know, Hazen uh, are all, you know, full-time faculty here. And so I think um, God's just been so good to us that, um, you know, we've got, uh, well, in many ways, I think just some of the real key leading people, you know, that uh, people can come and study from and I think we've all got tremendous hearts for the Lord and want to see Him glorified and um, just want to see people really use this stuff, you know, to God's glory. Yeah. Uh, so so that's the apologetic side, and there's also the MA philosophy of religion and ethics that I went through and the JP uh, started here years ago with Biola under Talbot School of Theology. And it's been a fantastic program, too. So there's a, a bunch of really neat things are happening here. Right. Well, like I said, I, I hear a lot, uh, a lot of good about it, particularly on uh, Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason, you know, with uh, Alan Schliemann and Brett Kunkel and stuff. So, yeah, gr- uh-huh. I've heard a lot of good stuff about it. Now, besides the topic that we're going to be discussing today, you've written or contributed to books and articles on a variety of other top- topics as well. What are some of those topics and works? Well, I got into things. Um, you know, my first publication was an essay uh, on Stanley Hauerwas's ethics. Um, and it came out in Philosophia Christi. Um, and Hauerwas was also one of the main people I looked at in my dissertation. Um, I also looked at Alistair McIntyre, and that ended up coming out slightly revised as a book with Ashgate. It was called Virtue, Ethics, and Moral Knowledge, uh, subtitled Philosophy of Language, after McIntyre and Hauerwas. And so I was looking at how uh, they wanted to fight as, as Christians, um, and yet they wanted to take, and they were drawing upon the old tradition there within Christian ethics about how to, um, how to, you know, uh, how, how should we formulate virtue ethics in a contemporary setting today? And I was fascinated with that. But um, I saw that they wanted to do it in a much more Wittgensteinian, you know, kind of way. Quite different than, you know, Aquinas or Aristotle ever proposed. So that really got my interest, and I worked on that, and that and that started me down a path of looking more at postmodern type thought, and what I call constructivist kind of thought. And it was through that, after playing around with that for a while, uh, a second book came out called Truth and the New Kind of Christian, so a little more popular type book with Crossway. Uh, that gets broadens it out into some of the emergent, uh, you know, type thinkers, some leaders mm-hmm. like Brian McLaren and um, Tony Jones. Um, but also, I started getting interested in other kinds of people who, whose views end up, I think, even if they don't intend for it to happen, they end up uh, collapsing into a view called constructivism, where we can't know reality as it really is, uh, but only in some sort of way 
reality ends up being a human construct or just our interpretation or, or something or other. And so I've I've done something on Alvin Plantinga's views, which is a little controversial, but <laughs> I I think a particular issue in his I thought needed to be addressed, and that came out in Philosophia Christi. And I've done a bunch on the emergence, uh, that, some different essays. One came out in one called uh, Evangelicals Engaging Emergent, and... Um, Oh gosh, I've been a number of others, and now I've got this naturalism and our knowledge of reality coming out with Ashgate as well. So that's kind of a smattering, and then there have been different things along the way. Um, I'm trying to market an ethics manuscript right now, too, as hmm. a defense of moral knowledge. Uh, so I've I got my fingers in a few different pieces, but I, don't, <laughs> and I have this constructivist theme running through them. So Sure. Well, well, how about the topic we're talking about today, body-soul dualism uh, versus monism or physicalism? How how'd you become interested in this debate, and what keeps you writing about it? <laughs> well, what I first got interested was probably from classes I had long ago with J.P. Moreland, because uh, that's where I took my metaphysics classes, you know, on philosophy of mind, you know, through him here when I was an M.A. student. And I, I, I had no idea about that stuff, <laughs> you know, until I got into those classes, and I oh, this is interesting, and I was interested in some ways of, from the standpoint of what, what did this, how did this play out in terms of ethics, for example? How was this view being presupposed, perhaps, you know, in certain bioethical, you know, type decisions? Um, I, I think that what got me interested most recently, though, was when I was teaching a class, uh, my very first one here, uh, for graduates and some upper division philosophy students on postmodernism. First time I'm using my uh, first book, you know, too. <laughs> and uh, I had a couple people in there, one person in particular who was uh, studying John Cyril quite a bit, um, you know, a naturalist, uh, kind of physicalist. And I started realizing from questions she was asking, she reminded me of an old class I had with Dallas Willard at USC. And the question she was bringing up about Cyril made me realize that there were a lot of connections in terms of the same kinds of problems, I thought, that I saw beset the postmoderns. I thought, huh, this, this might really, I, I think, apply you know, over here to these naturalists as well. Hmm. And, I, and as I started researching that and broadened into others like Paul Churchland and other people, I, I started to realize pretty quickly that a lot of these problems were endemic to what I think you know, physicalism. Now that, you know, anyone who holds to an ontology or a view of what's real, that is basically, you know, that's reductive, it's nothing but physical stuff. And so that made me realize that it extends beyond naturalism, nor could, you know, two different Christians even. So it's, it's that, that kind of angle, you know, that really got me interested. But now, how does this play out with Christians too? And can we really have knowledge? Can we have knowledge of God? Can, can we even have interpersonal relationships? And if we do go this route, what, do, what are the implications for core doctrines of the faith? So those are those are big questions that I think really really keep me going. Sure. <laughs> questions we're going to be talking about today. Um, well, you know, you briefly touched on it about physicalism being an ontology that uh, acknowledges the existence of only physical stuff. But maybe just summarize, particularly with respect to anthropology, these two broader categories of dualism and, uh, on the other hand, monism or physicalism. With regard to this, with regard to anthropology or the philosophy of mind, what do, what are these two broader categories? Well, dualism, um, 
you could be um, there could be two different kinds of dualism, perhaps. You know, uh, somebody could be merely a property dualist. Uh, they may merely think that there are um, uh, mental or you know something that is irreducibly mental or immaterial, just in terms of properties. And usually, this could be things like mental states, like thoughts or experiences or beliefs or whatnot. But someone could also be a substance dualist. In that case, you, you're looking at a, uh, what are people, essentially. Well, hmm. we're a, deep, a unity of body and soul on that kind of view. Or, or body, there's a material component to us and an immaterial component. Um, usually cashed out as body and soul. Um, now, people may differ on what are those. You know, they, they may have different ideas about body seems pretty clear these days, uh, wasn't necessarily just some older people like <laughs> idealists, but um, in terms of the soul, well, what is that? Some people may say, well, you could have a dichotomous view of human beings. There are two parts, body, soul, you know, immaterial, immaterial. You could be a trichotomist and say, well, you're going to make a division within that uh, immaterial part and say there's spirit and soul. When I say soul, I'm thinking in terms of the range of capacities we have in this immaterial aspect, you know, who we are, our, our, our essential nature. This is more of a Thomistic kind of idea than a Cartesian. Monism, basically, it's monistic or, or mono, you know, it's one kind of thing we are. Hmm. And usually today that's cashed out in, you know, we are, we are material. Uh, we're, we're physical, you know, kinds of beings. Uh, some people, again, might, you know, vary on that and say, yeah, we are, you know, reductive, you know, in terms of ontologically what kind of thing we are, what's real about us. We're just one kind of thing and it's all physical. Um, there are no individual immaterial mental states nor any such thing as a soul. We're, we, are, we are matter. Uh, and then you've got to cash out those things maybe as brain states or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll go back and grab it here, see if I can. Um, some people might be, uh, there might be a more pluralistic kind of physicalism. That's a term Dallas Willard's used, at least in one place, where you could, you could say, well, yeah, there could be mental states. Their existence completely upon the physical. They might just be epiphenomenal, you know, free writers that, you know, simply emerge from or caused by, you know, the physical, but don't don't in turn exert cause causal powers upon the body or anything like that. But basically, are we one kind of thing or two kinds of things would be a real broad swipe at that, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and when you when you described uh, dualism, you made a distinction between something called Thomism and, and something called uh, uh, Cartesian dualism. Can you very briefly describe what these two views are and why it is that you might hold the one over the other? I'll give it a crack. Okay. <laughs> more detail than I can possibly do justice to. Um, with that in mind, let me go ahead and refer to something as a further reading. Um, J.P. Moreland and Scott Ray came out with a book called Body and Soul uh, with InterVarsity Press, and I think it's 2000 is when it was first published. And I think it's chapter six. Um, Well, the first part of the book is all about the metaphysics of of human beings, and that's J.P.'s writing. And then Scott Ray does the applied ethics part after that. Well, chapter six is called Substance Dualism and the Body, 
And it's here where JP is starting to make some real distinctions between the Cartesian and the Thomistic views. Um, very roughly, um, and probably not doing justice to it either, <laughs> but the Cartesian view uh, you know, posits that we are two very different kinds of substances. Hmm. Um, immaterial soul, uh, material body. How do these things interact? Well, it's really problematic because they're on that view, they seem to be such radically different things. And uh, I think, if I remember right, his way of trying to account for this was they are somehow interact through the pineal gland of the brain. <laughs> now that that makes no sense to me. Yeah. You know, and I mean, the, uh, if you're going to have a problem with the material interacting with the immaterial, or vice versa, how does how does that solve anything? Right. Because you're working with something material. You know, now and. I just don't see how that just pushes the question back, you know, another step. Um, so there's this there's this question that always keeps dogging the Cartesian view about interaction. Um, on the Thomistic view, uh, there is, uh, page 206, JP gives a bunch of, in summary, um, oh, about, I think it's five or six summary kinds of points of the Thomistic view, and let me just quickly glance at them. Um, okay. Uh, the organism as a whole, that is, the soul, is, he says, ontologically prior to its parts. It is, it is the most foundational or most important element of our being. Uh, it is what is essential, you know, for us, you know, for our existence. Um, in, in the second one, the parts of the bo- organism's body stand in internal relations to the other parts and to the soul's essence. They're, they're internally related. They are, they are what they are in light of their relationship to the whole, to the soul. Um, I, I think of it, you know, in contrast, if you think of a, a thing like a computer, um, it's not a living organism, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it's got a soul at all. It's it's a bunch of parts, you know, uh, you know that have been put together, you know, in a certain design that's been imposed upon them with software, you know, as well. But the hardware, for example, uh, if you take this um, CPU, you know, and as it's situated in the motherboard. That motherboard, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to upgrade, you know, one of my old desktop units at home, and I bought a motherboard for that thing that was designed to fit the next generation AMD chip, hmm. uh, you know, to plug into it. So I didn't want to buy a plant obsolescence. It was my, you know, hope anyway. <laughs> of course, I got stuck with it <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but uh, the CPU is an old K6, uh, you know, chip. That CPU is, was what it was, even if it was sitting outside that motherboard, you know, mm-hmm. just sitting on my desk. It wouldn't have functioned, you know, unless it was plugged into that motherboard, unless the whole thing was properly assembled and, you know, had electricity and all those other necessary conditions. But if you took it out of the hole, out of the computer, that chip still was a K6 chip. Well, idea here, that those things are externally related. They are what they are, even apart from their being related to the whole. JP's saying that's not what it is in the case here of the Thomistic view of, of living organisms, the substance view. 
that the parts of the organism's body are in internally related. They are what they are in light of their relationship to the other parts and to the soul. And they are literally functional entities, like the heart functions to, you know, to pump blood. Uh, he also says the op- operational functions of the body are rooted in the internal structure of the soul. So it's, it's the soul that actually, it's not DNA per se, it's the soul that actually is directing the formation of the body. So the body's developed and grows in a law-like way towards its goal, in a teleological way, as a series of developmental events that occur in a law-like fashion according to that internal structuring of the soul itself. And then he says, the efficient cause of the characteristics of the human body is the soul and the various body parts, including DNA and genes. So it's the soul is the thing. You know, that is, there are instrumental causes that the soul uses to produce the traits that arise. So, so there's overall this deep unity amongst all these parts and properties of a living organism on this view. Hmm. And so, you know, to, to go on and explain how, you know, for example, how the soul could, uh, or I can, you know, my particular essence, how I can, like, cause my arm to move, I don't know, I can't explain the causal, you know, networking there, but on the idea here is that if I just pay attention to my own awarenesses, I can be aware that I simply did it. Hmm. I did it as a matter of my own freely willing to do it. I move my arm, I move my lips in certain ways to talk with you right now, these sorts of things. It's, there's an agent, you know, involved here. That's more than the sum of the body parts. Anyway, I, I went off on that a little bit there. I, oh, that's, that's okay. A little helpful. Uh, barely. <laughs> I think that. Okay. Uh, no, no, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that um, uh, my brain hurts a little bit, and I think that uh, oh. my listeners and I will probably have to go do a little bit more research to really understand this. I mean, you know, questions arise in my mind, for example, about consciousness uh, after death and in, in the scheme that you've uh, described and stuff like that. But you know, may, yeah. I'll definitely refer my listeners to uh, JP's okay. book. Um, now, I first discovered you when I stumbled upon an article that you wrote at CRI, or at least that CRI uh, has published uh, on their website, called Emergence and the Rejection of Body-Soul Dualism. In that article, you discussed something called, and you hinted, this, uh, hinted at this a moment ago, the interaction objection to Cartesian dualism. Um, explain that just a little bit more for us. Why, why in the Cartesian model is there a problem or, or a, a challenge faced in explaining how the soul can inter- interact with the body? Again, I think Descartes' view, there's no, there's not this deep type of unity that I was just trying to, you know, um, explain, at least briefly, you know, on the Thomistic view. Um, there's a deep ownership that everything, you know, in the human being is rooted ultimately, rooted in the sense, not physically somehow, because the soul's not physical, you know, for, on that view. Um, everything ultimately is owned by and given unity to, you know, by the soul on the Thomistic view. There is no real, there is no real kind of deep unity. There's no unifier like that, as I understand it at least, for the Cartesian view. We have a material body, and we have this immaterial soul. How do you explain their unity? How do you explain how they, 
function and work together? What what gives the the individual human being its its unity as an individual? Mm. Uh, because they are such obvious, and I think people point to this rightly so. It's like, well, yeah, Descartes. Uh, I think physicalists are right to chide this view uh, because I I don't know how to explain any sort of deep unity. And it, it, again, because we've got one entity here that is material, the other is immaterial. If you're looking for some sort of physical type of causation. How on earth can it happen? You know, yeah. It's, if I might give up kind of a, you know, a trite analogy, you know, this, uh, I've, I've often heard it described as, as though the soul is like the driver of a car and when the, uh, the, the car being the body, the body. And when the car is destroyed, the, uh, the soul is free to move. But, but the, but the problem with that analogy is sort of that, uh, uh, the soul is not the same kind of stuff as the body, but in this analogy, a person is the same kind of stuff as the as the car, namely physical. And so there's an interact there's a point of interaction there. So am I right in understanding the problem here being that this analogy fails because a soul is of a completely different kind of stuff altogether than the body? Yeah. yeah. And and also, um, you've got two different kinds of entities there. You know, in, in an analogy. Um, I think that's not a bad analogy. You know, of course, you know, we talk about the ghost and the machine sort of thing, but um, but, but just sticking with the one you gave there, um, I think it's very interesting. Um, we've got a living organism, which the Thomist would look at and say, well, look, you know, that's a living, whole, deeply unified being. It, it is, it is uh, it's got something that makes it what it is, um, the same even through change, and, mm. and that gets into, of course, uh, identity and things like that. And uh, you know, through change, that may get into the you know question about the ship Theseus and all. But um, you you've got now a, 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 a whole person that now literally comes and sits in the car. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have not now. This could be taken in a very um, pantheistic way, but I'm not sure else to say it offhand. It's not that I somehow become united with or one with the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm using it as an instrument. And that's merely it. Mm. There is no deep unity between me and the car. Sure. At all. I'm still me, even if that car you know, dies, as one of mine recently did, so to speak. I mean, stop having, you know, I had to give it up. Or get rid of it, um, but not so with me. You know, on that I don't think. So on one, and I, I would tend to call, you know, the the car there is an, it's an artifact. It's a it's an organized heap of parts and properties that have been designed by humans in order to achieve certain kinds of functional things. What gives it its unity? Well, it's a unity imposed by the designer, and it's and these things are externally related, just like the computer analogy with the motherboard and, and chip. Um, but I, it's like me using the computer in front of me, or you using your car. Um, there is no, yeah, there's no real unity at all there. Yeah, and that's that's analogous to the Cartesian. I see. So. 
so so it's not only that you have a problem with explaining uh, the way in which two radically different kinds of things interact with one another, but you also have this problem where even if they could, the what results is not a unity. It's just a util, utilizing a tool. Sort of. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I see. So I, I haven't thought about this at least for a long time. So I, there may be some good answers to it, but it it does raise a question at least off off the top of my head, is how do you account for literal sameness of a person's identity uh, how do you have the same how is it that you have the same person from yesterday to today even because just certain cells have changed different things have changed or over a longer period of time on the cartesian view because mm-hmm. you know, what is really the essence of the person you know that well uh, there may be good answers and i just forget them off at the top of my head but there's not this deep unity as sure. there is on the thomistic one Sure. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned this uh, identity problem with um, uh, with the body, because in this article you argue that this actually serves as a problem for uh, for physicalism, and it's because, if from the physicalist's point of view, um, the, the 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 person is entirely physical or entirely dependent upon the physical, but everything about everything that makes up the stuff of that person is constantly changing. Cells are dying and reproducing, et cetera, et cetera. But something that confuses me about this uh, objection of yours to physicalism based on personal identity, and, and, and maybe you can help me with this. Let's say that I built a ship, and, and actually it's funny you mentioned ship Theseus because I, I prepared this question, yeah. as you know, before I had heard about this analogy, but let me give it anyway. Let's say that I built a ship, and let's call it the USS Descartes, and because of normal wear and tear, I've got to frequently replace a plank on the deck or a mast or a beam or something like that. But but I make the changes bit by bit, bit by bit, not all at once. And after several years, every piece of thing that originally comprised the ship has now been replaced. It would seem to me anyway, of course I'm no, I'm no philosopher, but it would seem to me still reasonable to say that that's still the ship, the USS Descartes. Is that not the case? Well, this is one I was trying to you know, take a quick review of before we talk, and um, uh, a, a couple things about it. Uh, I, I'm going to also refer you, you know, for and your listeners for some further reading they can do about it. They'll they'll find it in other places too. But uh, J.P. Moreland again, and uh, William Lane Craig have co-authored a book called Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. That's uh, InterVarsity Press again, and it's 2003. Um, and on page two, starting on page 288, he takes up um, this ship Theseus, or we could call it here the USS Descartes. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, you know, he talks about you know how we could go through that same kind of um, replacement. This is an old story from Plutarch, um, you know, at least the original one. And he says, you know, we can assume what seems reasonable. Namely, that this answer, you know, is the correct one. Um, you know, the common sense intuition is the original ship is the one with the same parts and structure. Uh, you know, we'd have here. But then he, he wants to draw four points from that. First one is that if you have physical artifacts, they they don't maintain an absolute strict identity through change. Because an artifact, he says, cannot gain new parts or lose old ones and still be the very, literally, the same ship. Because what, what these things are is that they are, they are parts or properties that are structured in certain arrangements. And when those parts or structures change, the ship loses its identity. But the physical artifacts... Um, 
you know, a, a literal strict sameness through change is a fiction. It's a convention, you know, that we would bring, you know, to it. Um, it, it it's a, he calls it. Uh, he said this is a view of what's called Mariological essentialism, and, and just means that the parts of a thing are essential to it as a whole. So if it, if it gains or loses parts, like the USS Descartes through all that process of you know change there, it literally becomes a different object. Now here's the second thing. Uh, he says the best thing we can hope for is just a loose, more popular notion of identity. You know, for physical you know kinds of artifacts like like a ship hmm. or a computer or other things. Um, and here's a third thing. Um, identity, in the sense of at least for artifacts, physical artifacts, is somewhat arbitrary and comes in degrees. There's a, uh, like with, uh, you know, the ship, um, there's some arbitrary limit, you know, we could choose. You know, how many parts, you know, will constitute it being the, quote, same ship, unquote. Um, we're saying this is a matter of convention, uh, something we bring to the table, you know, the, to bear on it. We we count it as being the same thing. Uh, when there's not a literal, you know, precise, you know, sameness on this thing. Um, and and because you've got all, you know, this final point is that because you've got all these sameness through, you know, these these temporal parts rather, you know, these different arrangements at different points in time and. The different spatial parts are essential, you know, to these physical things. Um, the, the, then a specific artifact couldn't have had a different origin in time and still be the same object. So, all these to say here, it, it, there is a more loose, popular, conventional, uh, a human convention, you know, we bring to bear, you know, uh, when considering like the, the identity of the ship Descartes. Or the my computer. Uh, if I upgrade my computer, uh, I still it's still my computer. Yes, is it strictly the same? Speaking the exact same computer as it was when I bought it? No, it, it's changed. If I've upgraded the hard drive or added more RAM or whatever you know kind of thing to it. Um, human beings seem to be a different thing though, but that gets off to a different topic here. Sure. That's my quick take on that. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, I'd be interested to see how other philosophers, if, if they have different answers, why yeah. what their justification would be. Um, well, so now let's move on, though, from, from this uh, identity objection to physicalism to another one. Um, you sent me an essay being considered for publication called Should a Christian Scholar Be a Physicalist?, which I think further touches on the argument that you're developing in your upcoming work, Naturalism and Our Knowledge of Reality, Testing Religious Truth Claims. Yeah. And it has to do with, from what I understand, our capacity to have knowledge of reality, to have real knowledge. Explain what you mean when you say that a Christian physicalist like, say, Nancy Murphy thinks that we can have knowledge about reality. What, what that actually means is that she rightly assumes, and this is a quote from you, she rightly assumes that our thoughts, beliefs, experiences, and more can be together with reality, that phrase together with being a repeated theme in the essay. Explain this for me. The idea of being together with, that sort of thing? Right. Okay. Um, well, Nancy uh, has, you know, in her different works, has a whole lot to say about reality. Um, 
in fact, in different places, you know, at one time I was kind of questioning, you know, just to what extent, you know, does she really think there is a real world? And, you know, when I went back and really looked at those things, uh, the re- reason I say that, maybe I should give a little qualification on that, is because she is so um, uh, clear, you know, in her views and uh, insists upon that all our observations, all our any sort of access to reality is always theory-laden, or you might say requires interpretation or a conceptual scheme, uh, etc. There's no direct access for her, but nonetheless, there's still access to reality. So, with, when she's making all sorts of claims, I, I went back with you know that first set of thoughts about kind of access we have. It's like, well, for her, what's that mean? Is there a real world? And she went on and I realized as I paid attention to it, it's like, oh yeah, of course there is. And and frankly, that's I mean a, a good thing. I think you know I, I think anybody who's worth reading is going to you know maintain that kind of assumption. Yeah, well, of course there's a real objective. Uh, we say often mind-independent world, a world that exists whether or not I think about it or believe anything about it or even experience it. It's there. Uh, and she clearly does. Um, and she has lots to say about it. Um, so does so does Joel Green or a number of other people. Um, or a lot of these, these naturalists. She has tons of things to say. Uh, for example, uh, one of her things that um, I like, you know, just, it was stuck in my mind because uh, one of her quotes goes something like, uh, creation is physical. Um, and she's very clear about human, uh, what human beings are. Uh, we are, she's an ontological reductionist, you know, in terms of uh, the nature of what is real is physical stuff, mm. how I understand her. But at the same time, she says, but I'm against causal reductionism. Hmm. You know, I, I'm not going to reduce all causation to nothing but a lowest level and then bottom up. No, there's forever top down and a whole part, you know, type of constraint. Um, God's in the picture, you know, how he's got, if, he, if there's any sort of working in a top down way, surely God's got to be able to do that. Um, um, there are different levels of analysis we can bring, you know, to studying, you know, um, Creation, uh, our creatures, living creatures, different social systems, and, and whatnot. So there's a whole lot she has to say, and so she's making lots of claims about reality, and I'm simply just saying, make you know, like, I'm just you know, agreeing. It's like, yeah, you know, she's she's assuming, and I'm agreeing with her, you know, on this, that sure, we we can have thoughts, beliefs. Uh, experiences, you know, that can be about what is real. Um, we can have um, what I what I think about, or let's say um, whether or not she's right is another question. But let's just say this this claim is a claim about how reality is that uh, creation's physical. Uh, that thought can be together with how it really is if it's true. You know, it, it's that's how things really are. Uh, so this claims, you know, that uh, we can have thoughts about reality, that it can be together with, match up with, do um, we know that perfectly, uh, exhaustively? Uh, I think I think people like uh, Merrill Westfall's right when he says, you know, only God's going to know things exhaustively, and that makes sense, you know, to me. Uh, I'm not going to try to claim I've got a God's eye view, you know, of everything. I'm I'm fallible, but 
I'm also also reminds me that there are certain things in scripture that where it does say, no for certain. And that mm. that makes me kinda of pause and you know, makes me really kinda of go, hmm, okay, there there's certain things the Bible seems to say I can know for certain. Okay, but do I know everything about it? No, of course not. But this idea that we can have our our thoughts can be together might be a way to say that they can match up with. So would it be fair to say that the, uh, and you've used this phrase before, the ofness or the aboutness, that the contents of, of, of a mental state, that, that which it's about, can line up correctly with reality. Is that, is that what you're basically explaining? Yeah, yes. Um, you know, I can, um, uh, here's maybe, you know, a quick example. Uh, I'm thinking about, I've got a picture of uh, my wife in front of me here at my desk, and I'm looking at it right now. And my daughter's with her, and I have a I have a thought about my daughter right now. She is in uh, her morning session for her fourth grade class at Del Rosa Christian in San Bernardino, California. Uh, that's my thought about her. I've got all sorts of good reasons to believe it's true because I know her schedule, and I know that's where she was going to go this morning. Um, uh, does that if is if that is you know really matches up with how things are? You know, I, I'd have to investigate a little more just to be utterly sure. Well, she's there and didn't have to go to the doctor, let's say, suddenly, or, you know, or, you know, heaven forbid that, you know, had a car accident and actually died, you know, and is not there. I could be wrong, uh, but my thought can be together with, you know, reality. It can match up with it if, if in fact, she is there. I see. Okay. Now, that's a pretty basic claim, I think. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sound to me to be very uh uh controversial except perhaps uh well, in any case. <laughs> uh so the um it certainly wouldn't be controversial between you and I, I guess the point that I'm getting at. Now, we're going to we're going to get to what you think is the problem for uh, for a physicalist in explaining this kind of togetherness with reality. Uh but the the premise of this seems to me from from what I've read uh, their denial of the existence, ontologically speaking, of anything but purely physical stuff. So, for example, what what they would call a mental state, you seem to insist is only a so-called mental state rather than a genuine genuine one. Can you unpack that for us? Well, if you're going to be um, an ontologically reductive physicalist, <laughs> um, you know, like Nancy Murphy, you know, for example, um, you are and most of the people writing in this, it seems, you're going to end up with no room for irreducibly mental states. At the end of the day, they all can be reduced to physical stuff. That's what I mean by, you know, uh, there's no room for a genuine mental state. Uh, now, I, I, don't, I realize that there are a lot of people out there who are physicalists, um, couple of uh, naturalists come to mind like Michael Ty or Fred Dretzky, they, they want to talk a whole lot about mental states. And they want to talk about this thing called intentionality, the, uh, just the, you know, that my thought is of something or my experience is about something. Yeah. Uh, that's all it is, the otherness or aboutness of our mental states. They want to talk a whole lot about those things. And I think even want to say they're real, but what they mean by that is at the end of the day, they all are they're reducible to uh, individual particular brain states. There's no room in terms of their view of what's real 
for anything to be immaterial, a mental, what I mean by a genuine, genuinely irreducible, immaterial mental state. So, if you if you don't mind me interjecting for a moment, so maybe to put put some flesh on this, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that. Um, these physicalists, as much as they might like to speak about uh, mental states, what they're really describing is uh, some sort of interaction that takes place between the firing of neurons. You know, um, it, it really is truly the, the functioning, uh, the, the function, bet- the functioning between these interconnected physical things called, you know, brain, you know, brain neurons, whatever. Uh, but that's not, but that's not ontologically speaking, another thing called a mental state. Is is that kind of what you mean by it being reducible to physical? Yes. They, and it, it, it's real interesting how you put it because it reminds me of a move like Michael Ty makes, and I, I kind of wonder if this is what Nancy Murphy is is doing too. Uh, now I realize that she can use different terms and different you know kinds of occasions on this, but at least just trying to take her seriously when she says, "I am an ont- I am ontologically reductive," you know, in terms of being a physicalist. So. It's nothing but physical stuff, you know, that exists. How do you account for the mental then? Then it seems to be just like Michael Tye says, uh, we are describing physical states or neuronal configurations, maybe, or brain states or something, you know, to do with the brain uh, in a different kind of way. We're using a different kind of a level of description, or I think Murphy might say a different kind of discourse. We're using more mentalistic or psychological discourse, or more pejoratively, maybe like um, Paul Churchill might say, folk psychology. Uh, We're using the mentalistic kinds of notions, but let's not be ontologically. There's really still just physical stuff at work here, Hmm. but it's being described differently. I see. Conceived of or interpreted differently. Right. Yeah, I understand. It's a fascinating move, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is. Uh, Definitely. It's about language. Sure, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, gosh, it was a word that came to mind a second ago, but, uh, but yeah, I understand. So they're, 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 they're flexibly using um, language to sound as if they're talking about uh, the existence of something, but they're just really describing uh, a physical thing that's taking place. I, I understand. Now, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So, so maybe you can put this together then for us. Given the uh, ofness or aboutness of mental states, their their ability to be together with or line up correctly with uh, reality, and on the other hand, given physicalism's seeming denial of of genuinely ontological men, uh, ontological mental states, why is it then? that physicalism fails to account for how we can have uh, knowledge of reality, for how our mental states can be together with reality? Well, um, I think that there is no genuine ofness or aboutness, you know, when it comes down to it. Uh, Because some some people have said, I I think J.P. Moreland happens to be one of them, but, uh, uh, but a number of people have said intentionality, this this quality that I'm simply calling the ofness or aboutness of our quote-unquote mental states, whatever they end up being at the end of the day, um, that it it is the hallmark of the mental. 
And when I read someone like a Fred Dretzky, again a naturalist, but he's he's a he is a what's called a token reductive physicalist. Um, same with Michael Ty. Uh, they they take intentionality very seriously, and yet realize it's got to be accounted for within a physicalist, you know, ontology. Well, uh, there there's two basic kind of moves. Then, if there's no, just simply, if there's no, if if, if intentionality can't be something that's somehow immaterial, as I would hold, then you've got to account for it somehow in a physical sort of way. A physicalist way, and I, and to me, there are two. I think two basic routes you could go on that. One is is it could be something like um, uh, Michael Ty does. He says uh, he tries to explain intentionality uh, in terms of causal covariation under optimal conditions. Causal okay. covariation. What's that? I said okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he may call it registration. Even. He may call it indication. Uh, he, and he gives an analogy of like a thermometer. Think, think of the old kind of thermometers with mercury in them, and uh, you know they'd rise, you know, depending upon you know correlating with the the temper with the heat, and it would indicate based upon the level of the mercury the temperature of uh, my daughter was running, let's say, you know, when she was sick. Um, so. He makes the. He says this is what intentionality, how it can be understood. It is a causal covariation, hmm. something that causally covaries. Yet this is what an experience is. It is a. It is a causal covariation, or a registration, let's say, or an indication, where we have a red appearance experience or something, and it is of. Meaning is causally correlated with, let's say, a red ball, you know, that's outside us. Um, and what's happening is the whole causal story, you know, is going on. Light waves are bouncing off the ball and pinching on my retina, going through my optic nerve, and I can't tell all the, I don't know all the details with this, but causing and eventually causes certain brain states to occur. That is a registration, an indication of red, they'd say. That is that is equivalent to saying we're having an experience of red. Hmm. It is a matter of standing in a causal correlation, you know, with this thing. Um, well, uh, now someone like you know, I I don't see someone like Murphy, for example, even going into this sort of discussion. But 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 Michael Ty and Fred Dretzky have done a lot on it. Um, and it, it's interesting to look at them, and you know, and I've interacted with Dretzky a bit about this. Uh, they want to say, and I think they're right on it, that hey, I simply see the ball out there. I mean, that makes sense to me. I'm I'm not I'm not when I'm looking, I, I, I'm not looking at this state that's in my head, literally some physical state. Um, I'm I you know, because for them it can't be my experience, it has to be something physical. It's got to be a physical thing. So yeah, I'm not looking at my experience. I'm looking at the ball. I simply see the ball. But the problem, I think, with that, there is a problem at least, and I know Dretzky has some rebuttals, and in the book I try to take him to task for it. Um, but the, the the problem still comes to mind, I don't think they solve, is that 
I, I'm fine with that. That makes sense to me. Mm. Uh, for me to experience, since I'm an embodied being here, you know, in this life, that's I need that. That's a necessary condition for me to have those experiences. But for them, if, if there's no room for anything immaterial, an experience here can't be something immaterial, what is it then that I'm experiencing? Am I experiencing that that ball out there, as they you know say? Seems like it's not, because all that is here is there is nothing but a completely physical causal chain here that's going on between me and with me and the ball, and there's a potentially infinite series here of physical states between me and the ball, and for all I know, I've got access just to the last one, hmm. whatever I am. How do I know then? And, and they're they're sensitive to this, but I don't think they've got a good answer to it. Uh, how how do I know then that my last causal state does in fact match up with that ball out there? Hmm. I don't know how I can possibly transcend this chain because I'm physical too. <laughs> there, there's if something's immaterial in this then it doesn't seem stuck behind a physical series. Hmm. How do I do it? So that's the first option, and I think, you know, a way a physicalist might say, well, here's how you can have an experience, for example, of something, and you can be, you can really match up with that thing out there. Dan Dennett, um, you know, is another guy who comes up with a different answer. Um, and his answer is very different than like a Dretzky or Ty, and he simply says, well, the, all these things, these so-called mental states and so-called intentionality and all this stuff, they're not real at all. <laughs> they, there's only brain patterns. There's certain objective, you know, uh, you know, patterns in the world and whatnot. Yes, you know, philosophy, uh, you know, uh, should be, you know, subsumed under, under science, there's certain things we can know about reality that are you know, really true about reality, but as far as intentionality or any such you know thing about this ofness or aboutness, you know, it's not real. Hmm. All it is is an attribution, a conceptualization, maybe an interpretation that we bring to the table uh, when we. He um, he calls it we're we're just making. It's a useful heuristic to be able to make predictions of behavior from a thing he calls the intentional stance. It's a stance we take toward, a, uh, let's say, a chess-playing computer. And uh, the computer has been programmed you know, to play chess, and uh, we, we are observing it. Uh, play chess with Mr. Spock, let's say. And, uh, you know, we, um, Spock, you know, makes some move. He tells the computer what the move is, and the computer, you know, says, you know, this alternate move. And Spock then says this move and, and so forth. We are observing this stuff, and what we are doing is we're going to treat the chess-playing computer as an intentional system, something that has been designed as though it has these real intentional states, has thoughts, you might even say, about the game. What would be the best move? It has strategies, all these sorts of things. But really, if, we, if we're going to take 
natural, naturalistic evolution seriously, there are no such things. <laughs> hmm. there, there are no such things at all. All we are are the products of, you know, you know, chance mutations, you know, working on matter. Same with us. Um, we also do not really have real intentionality. Um, it's merely uh, a convenient way of, uh, it's a shorthand way of predicting behavior accurately. What what will he do when he's in this kind of situation? Uh, well, we think this. You know, if, if you know if it's a you know if this was an intentionally you know designed kind of system you know that has purposes and thoughts about things, it'll do this. When in reality, though, all we're doing, we're just doing this to help predict behavior. There are no such things. I understand. And his point is, you know that. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, these things are just our interpretations of of this behavior. That's all we're doing. Right. Um, there are no deeper facts, he says. No deeper facts of the matter about what the computer meant, so to speak, you know, when it did such and such. Or what um, what someone meant when they said such and such. Because... There are no essences, he says, and he is explicit about it. No immaterial, metaphysically abstract entities that exist out there. They'd be immaterial things. There are no such things, because if there were, he realizes from following Quine and his own answers to this stuff, it's like, if there were, there could be real facts of the matter about what someone really meant when they did this or when they wrote that. And... But all because there are no essences, we are really just working with our interpretations. Yeah. And they're subject to, you know, you know, uh, there, there are no real deeper facts of the matter. Now, he says that in terms of, you know, meanings of words. But I think the point extends very easily then to say, um, what about with our thoughts about things or experiences of things. Because if we extend that view, there's no deeper facts because there are no essences. Then there is no there is no deeper fact of the matter when we say that my experience is really of something or my thought is of something. That's just my interpretation of of behavior you know, going on here. Sure. There's no deeper fact of the matter where you could have this thought that is actually about something. Willard criticizes him, Dallas Willard does, uh, in an essay where he points out there are no, and and this is where uh, Dennett uh, makes a a nod in his book, The Intentional Stance Toward um, Derrida, which is curious, I think fascinating little move. It's in a footnote, uh, and he says, "Huh, um, if you're a Quinean, a follower of Quine's views, like Dennett is, he says this. This person he's quoting says um, that Quinians realize what Derrida already, you know, would point out too, that brain writings, brain, um, I guess, neural pathways, brain state tokenings, 
anything like this. Brain writings are, again, physical tokens that are as much subject to interpretation as anything else. So what's the fact of the matter then? Is this brain state here really about, you know, some fact in the world? Is it really an experience of reality? Or is that just our interpretation? I see. And, and the point is, there are no essences that, as Dennett says, he admits it, there, if there were essences, we could have real intrinsic, my extension is to intentionality. Something that just is, just because of what it is, it is, that's its nature, we might say. It's about this. Why is my thought about uh, my daughter right now? Because that's its nature. It has a, how can it be about her? Because it has a particular nature. It's not causally correlated with her, you know, right now, per se. She's not here. Um, or I could think about something that's not real, Pegasus. It's not causally correlated with Pegasus. And Dennett's option is, hey, look, there, there are no real essences to these things. So when we have when we say we have an experience of something or a thought about something, we are simply take to be the case that it's about those things. Sure. When in fact it could be about something wildly different, and there are no deeper facts to settle the issue. Okay. So all our all our thoughts that we're claiming about here's the way things really are, and it's all physical. I I think then it actually is. If you're going to take, at least as a naturalist, you're going to take the naturalistic story seriously. This is where it goes. Sure. And there's no way you're going to have a thought that is intrinsically about anything. But then I think it goes to the Christian physicalist, too, because there are no natures or abstract entities that are essences to things anymore. Right. I understand, although, although in one of the writings you did suggest that even if such a Christian physicalist were to uh, acknowledge, however it is that they might ground this, the existence of genuine intentional mental states. Um, yeah. e even if that did rescue them from this inability to uh, know yeah. reality, it, we still run back to the issue that we began with, which is the identity issue. Um, yes. uh, explain why that, even if they went that route, this lack of ability to account for personal identity jeopardizes our ability to have relationships, both with others and, and, and even with the Lord himself. Explain that for us. Okay. Well, even if you can have these genuine, uh, irreducible mental states, you know, that I called that a pluralistic kind of physicalism before. You've got that, but it's, you know, product of the brain, let's say. Mm. Somehow you've got to be able to use these things. Well, how? Um, first of all, how, how do you use them? Uh, because now we've got the interaction objection turned around, and now the physicalist has got the problem. Because a physical or material brain has got to somehow interact with and use these mental states that are now of these different things. Hmm. How do you do that? What, of what use is it? So offhand there, that, that seems to me is like, yes, it, it brings in one part of the equation that we need. Uh, or necessary conditions, I used equation just kind of loosely, you know, speaking, where you have these genuinely, you know, 
irreducible, you know, intentional states. You need that, I think. But on the other hand, I need there's got to be more to us, or else they're useless to us, to no reality. So let, let's say, just, just for me to um, have a relationship with my wife, let's say, um, it requires that you know, I we just celebrated our 27th anniversary, and I knew her for about two and a half years before that, before we got you know, before we tied the knot. Hmm. So I've been getting to know her over a long time, and I realize this is, involves a couple different kinds of knowledge, you know, knowing a person, sure, but it also requires to know someone well is going to require my knowing certain things that are true about her. And a lot of that is going to come from my experience of her, my making observations about her. I can learn from experience what she likes and doesn't like. Um, I learned something new about her the other night, you know, talking about Halloween candy, and my daughter is like, okay, let's take a vote. Who, uh, Which of us likes um, uh, York peppermint patties? <laughs> my wife loves peppermint. Not with that. <laughs> There's just something about it in that kind of format she just doesn't like. And it's like, oh, I learned something there. Mm-hmm. I learned the fact about her from her own self-disclosure. I had to observe that, be able to have an experience of her saying that, observe her putting her thumbs up you know, in response as my daughter asked, you know, do you like it? Well, no, she put her thumb down. And I could observe that. I could see it for what it was. I could ask her questions, go, really? You, know, you like peppermint. You're like, wait a second, I don't get it. And, and find out that kind of stuff. And it be, yeah, I had to be able to experience those things form thoughts about it, observe, you know, experience her words, experience her behavior. Same with other sorts of things where I've had to learn facts about her, um, where she's from, getting to, uh, you know, that she's from Virginia, uh, you know, and other things she likes, other hearing about her background, um, her story about how she became a Christian, and all these sorts of things requires my paying close attention to her, listening to her, hearing her. It requires all this intentionality of all these different mental states that somehow I've got to be able to use, pay attention to, keep them in mind, maybe recall lots of other experiences I've had in the past, compare them with others' experiences I've had with her or other beliefs and thoughts I've had about her, and go, how does that fit with this old belief I had? Because I've got to modify my old belief about peppermint, you know, and her liking that now. It's not across the board. Somehow there's got to be something about me through all this time that can have what Willard calls a certain noetic unity or a unity of my mind, whatever that is here for now, that there's got to be a deep unity that I can call and recall these other memories to my mind, other thoughts to my mind, beliefs to my mind, compare them with one another somehow. How do I do that if I'm somehow physical? There's got to be an agent somehow that owns these things, that does these things, that has these things that is the owner of them, that was the subject of them, even. Um, that somehow 
can compare these things with one another. I don't even know how I do that if I'm if I'm somehow this physical thing or a brain or whatever, and these are immaterial states that I'm working with. Somehow throughout this whole process, and then there's the issue of my sameness through all this. Because if I'm not literally the same person through all this, how is it that I'm able to follow through on all this train of thought, even over a span of years of experiences and thoughts and beliefs? Hmm. And that gets into my personal identity. How do I remain the same on a physicalist account? Uh, if I may digress just briefly, I think it'll be interesting for your subject, though. Uh, this this reminded me of something that um, Joel Green says in his uh, uh, book on human nature, uh, Body, Soul, and Human Nature, I think it is. He says that, in one place he says that when the body dies, the person dies. Hmm. Now, that's fascinating to me, <laughs> and, and it, it really makes me wonder on that is how do we maintain, then, our personal identity even after death? Because he affirms the resurrection, Yes, and you know, I, rightly so. Um, but I don't know how I am going to be the one who is going to inherit the eternal life who was promised to him when I trusted Jesus when I was 20 years old. Right. And that's, you know, that's over 30 years ago. How is it still me through all this? And this uh, this is the same big issue I think physicalists have with this. How to ground this personal identity? But let me let me uh, let you jump back in. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Uh, it, it, this this resurrection issue is is something even physicalists will often acknowledge as a challenge. And um, you know, I, I've talked with one of them about it in a previous show and. Um, you know, even even he admitted that he's not certain uh, the right way to answer that question. So I definitely see that. But at least with respect to everything, that, let me just try and sum it up. So you're saying that without uh, without another essence uh, to our being, then there is no capacity to have ofness of something, and therefore it's impossible to know anything about reality. But even if a physicalist were to uh, posit the existence of some sort of uh, genuine mental state, there still has to be some sort of uh, essence that owns and, and, and operates outside of those things so that it can interpret those things over time um, and, and, and remain per and have, and re have a remaining uh, a, a personal identity that is ongoing throughout all those different changing mental states and stuff like that. Is that a fair way to summarize yes. what we've said? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. I understand. Very much so. Okay. I'm going to have to get my, uh, uh, you know, physicalist friends to give this a listen and see what they think. Um, but, but uh, <laughs> okay. yeah, let's begin to wrap up, though, because, uh, you know, we've gone over okay. the time that, that you had for me. Um, for, for those listening who have found what we've had to say persuasive, who don't consider monism or physicalism particularly plausible, how serious should we consider this error? Are we talking something like a minor error or, or damnable heresy or somewhere in between? <laughs> well... Uh, I want to be real careful, you know, as far as, you know, someone I meet and talk with. I, I think there are serious issues that do stem from this. I'll, I'll touch on a few, you know, with them. Uh, but as far as, you know, talking or dialoguing with someone on this, uh, even though I think that, you know, some of these things lead to some very serious doctrinal problems, it's not going to do a bit of good, you know, I don't think, in, in coming to someone and just say, oh, you heretic, mm. <laughs> you know, because... That's not going to do any good. Um, and plus, I need to I need to hear them and understand where they're coming from and walk a mile in their shoes. Right? How did they come to these conclusions? And it, 
it's certainly not going to uh, help persuade them, you know, to my point of view, if I did that anyway. Uh, sure. It, it just, it'd be rude, you know, too. Um, but anyway, uh, a, a few thoughts. Um, first of all, um, I, I would want to, um, I think, first acknowledge something very good that I see a lot of physicalists doing. Um, they are reminding all of us as believers of the importance of the body. Um, there are, unfortunately, I think, um, maybe it's subtly, uh, more I read some of the emergent authors, I see some of this kind of talk to that, uh, it, this kind of language even, uh, evangelicals, you know, can be prone to use of, um, you know, I get to, um, that implies or, or maybe even more than that, you know, that somehow I, the, the thing is, uh, get to flee my body and go to heaven. Shedding my mortal coil. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and wait a minute, you know, uh, people who are writing on this and sensitive to this stuff, especially, you know, if they're physical, if they're very sensitive to the, the importance of the body. God made the body. The body is good, and it's part of God's good creation. Uh, and so I want to I want to echo that and agree with them about that that point that value mm. and also um, they're right in pointing out that the eternal state we are going to be embodied right um, so I, you know as I read Revelation at least it, you know the last part seems to be here's the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to be on earth <laughs> and you know we are going to be here embodied. With the Lord, like wow. <laughs> I yeah. mean, so we dare not deny those things or somehow discount the importance of the body. Uh, with that in mind, still some of these things I've mentioned already, I think, are serious issues. Um, you know, as far as not knowing reality, but doctrinally, a couple quick things. I, I don't understand how the resurrection and eternal life can be be preserved on this issue. Um, uh, I, I think that, um, if I remember right, and I could be wrong in this, but I thought Joel Green's idea might be that we are somehow immediately given new bodies, you know, upon death, um, new resurrected bodies. I don't see that biblically. And it, uh, the other day I happened to be back in Daniel, and I think it's the last chapter, talking about the last judgment. It seems that then at the end, at the judgment, new bodies come. You know, at least it seems like that's when it's come at the at the end. He know. acknowledges that, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it would take us for a while to to uh, explain what he thinks happens to the person at death, but but I do happen to know that his view is not that they are immediately given their resurrection bodies. That's fascinating. Huh? Yeah. In he would. Light of that, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Can I, um, in light of that. My concern then is it, when the body dies, the person dies. It means then, it sure seems to me is, it's, I, I think another of his explanations is that, well, maybe there's a sense of how when, you know, there is, even though literally no continuity of person at that point, uh, after death, temporally, somehow there is no experience of a lapse of time for the person. Hmm. when resurrected. But that means then, it seems to me, is that the person dies, that person has ceased to exist. 
And so his move to appeal to the narrative unity, God somehow keeps our narrative in mind, to in order to be the basis of our unity, is a move I've expected someone to make, and, I've, I've, and I'm glad to see someone put it in print. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, however, to me, I don't see how that's going to do it, because then you've got to ask, what's a narrative? Right. And again, in a physical creation, a narrative got to be physical stuff. And the same issues with sameness of person are going to surface with sameness of narrative. What's the unity of the narrative? It's constantly changing. It gains parts. It loses parts. So how does that work? So anyway, um, and then there's issues that come up if we're just physical stuff. Then sin, I think, has to be redefined. Because I... You know, sin to me seems to be one of the prototypical soulish kinds of things. So I, I think I see a move instead to defining sin in terms of disruption of relationship. And so there's a sense of how there's a movement among some people to say, well, our core need then is not really that we are somehow dead in sin and not related to God. Yes, we do stand in the created by you know relation. I'll grant that. But Scripture sure seems to talk about our being dead in trespasses and sins and needing to be born from above and given a new heart Mm. so that we come alive to God. Um, Being born from above as the Spirit, you know, comes and regenerates us. Well, the, the physicalist move seems to lead to a view where we're not really out of relationship, but we need to work on our relationship, come closer to God, and that starts getting into the behavior, the works, you know, that we do. But it's not this it's not this idea of being separated, dead in our sins. Scripture seems to be a lot clearer on that, and that, that leads to real concerns. Um, and if if that's the case, what's the needed remedy? You know, what why did Jesus die on the cross then? Yeah. Was it a moral example, or was it an atonement for our sins? And so it, it has these ripple effects. And then, what about the incarnation? Is Jesus? What's the? How do you explain the unity of the human, the human person, and the divine person? Because now you've got the divine logos, who has got to be immaterial, and yet Jesus, to be fully human, would be just physical. How do they interact? I don't understand that. Um, and it seems to me that there is, it's hopeless that he there even could be. So why would God even attempt an incarnation? Yeah. Uh, these are real questions for me. And even his resurrection, if there's, if the, if the human person dies when the body dies, then Jesus, the human person, died, ceased to exist when he died on the cross. Therefore, it seems like he, same with us, if we can't be the same as a person in resurrection, how is it that he survived death and was resurrected? I think there's a problem there. Um, and you read that article that I did of Joel Green in the Criswell Journal. That's a question I, I think is a, an issue there. Um, so anyway, those are, those are some, I think, some serious issues with this that arise, and there may be others. Sure. Yeah, I understand. Okay. 
Well, where would you recommend that uh, listeners go for further defenses of uh, mind-body dualism? Well, there are probably you know several of the older writers, um, Aquinas, uh, Aristotle, um, more contemporary ones, J.P. Moreland, Stuart Goetz, uh, G-O-E-T-Z is another, Dallas Willard would be another. Um, those are a few quick ones who came to mind. None of those folks are Cartesians. Um, uh, uh, one, there's one person who that I'm aware of who is probably the best defender of the Cartesian view is Richard Swinburne. Um, but again, we've mentioned some issues you know, with you know the Cartesian view. But nonetheless, I respect Swinburne a lot. Swinburne a lot. So. Okay. And how can my listeners uh, and I get our hands on some of the work that you've published, and, and how can they contact you if they have any questions? Oh, gosh. Uh, get some hands on some of the work I've done. Um, I'm just tempted to say Amazon, <laughs> you know, as far as some of those books go. Uh, I think I've got a you know a thing or two here from apologetics uh, at Biola. You know, if, um, if you went to Biola's website and then apologetics within it, we have a thing called apologetics resources. And so I think I've got a taped uh, you know lecture or recorded lecture or two you know there. And then of course you know uh, the different books you know we mentioned earlier. Um, uh, also, um, as far as contacting me, just a great way to do it, I'm, I'm, I try to be real faithful with it, uh, is my email here, uh, simply scott, with two t's, scott.smith, at biola, uh, b-i-o-l-a, dot e-d-u. Great, I really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, well, I suspect that your head hurts as much as mine, but I did enjoy the interview, and I hope you did as well. Uh, November, late November, is going to be the debate between James White and Patrick Novice on the Trinity, and I hope you'll join me for that episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...